You are listening to Season 4 of Future Ecologies. Well, I'll just get started then. I'm Adam. Mendel. In the last episode, we discussed the NAM, shorthand for... The North American Model of Wildlife Conservation. And the NAM is... Uh, the NAM is... Uh, a set of principles that guide policy in wildlife conservation in North America, specifically the U.S. and Canada, a way that we think about and allocate wilderness and wildlife, mostly for the benefit of hunters. Yeah, consumptive users. Consumptive users. Yeah, and so I would say it's a sort of historical accounting and also a proposal for wildlife conservation in North America. Yeah. And can you remember any of the principles? Oh, God. Uh, do I have to do them in order? No. Okay. I mean, the, the general gist of it is that wildlife shouldn't be commodified and that the state should have control over how it is managed. So taking it out of the hands of the free market and putting it in the hands of the state in order to make sure that populations are managed, access is managed, and... Uh, Perverse financial incentives don't cause humans to crash wildlife populations. Is that more or less it? I think it's a really good recapitulation. Thank you. And then there's a couple other bits, right? Which are that wildlife are international resources. Right. And that science. Capital S science is the way that we make these decisions. Not business interests, not spirituality, not anything else. That's right. And that... Ideally, this system is democratically available to all citizens of good standing in North America, that we can all access wildlife as a resource. <laughs> right. Resource being the key word. And, and commonly held. A public trust resource. So we discussed some critiques of this model in the last episode from the perspective of its shortcomings around large carnivore conservation. Also, its lack of inclusivity, both socially and financially. Right. We also discussed some of its successes, including the billions of dollars raised for wildlife conservation by institutions associated with the model and the recovery of many formerly rare species that are now common. Specifically ones that we like to eat. Specifically ones that we like to eat. The fact that wildlife conservation could intrude upon the religious, political, and economic forces that gave rise to the United States of America remains for me a small miracle that the model, in quotation marks, helped gave rise to. You remember Shane Mahoney, right? Yes. He literally co-wrote the book on the model, and he's been a proponent for over two decades now, going back to when Dr. Valerius Geist first articulated the principles. Hmm. So today we're going to get into some issues that we didn't have time to address in the last episode, because frankly... They're enormous. <laughs> They're big issues. <laughs> and the first one is the erasure of indigenous peoples from the history that the model is describing and the principles that it articulates, which mirrors the settler colonial enterprise's attempt as a whole to erase indigenous people from the continent. Mm. It's part and parcel. What can you say about this history? I mean, you can say it was repeated all over the place, all over the world in different times and categories. But the truth of the matter is, it was brutal, fiendish, and simply hard to imagine for most of us today 
And what's even harder to imagine, of course, is that we have manifestations of those parameters and attitudes and feelings that are repeated up until the present time. Yeah, I'll co-sign that. There's subtle and not so subtle echoes of colonization everywhere. Yeah, it's an ongoing process. And I think we've discussed it a lot on future ecologies. We're going to discuss it today, not in the negative, but from this perspective of a bright spot. Hmm. And that bright spot is right here in coastal British Columbia. So with that, I have two introductions for you. Yeah, my name is Mukwes which means white bear in my language. My other name is Doug Nisloss. I work as the elected chief as well as the stewardship director for the Kittisu Heihis Nation on the central coast of BC. And I'm Kyle Artel. I live in Wachwisak's Heichchauk, or Heichchauk Heltzik territory, just south of Kittisu Heihis territory where Doug is today. I'm of European descent. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the University of Victoria and a biologist with Rancoast Conservation Foundation. So Heltzik and Kittisu Heihei's territory is part of what is now popularly known as the Great Bear Rainforest. You heard of it? I, I have heard of the Great Bear Rainforest. That's basically like pretty much all of coastal BC north of Vancouver Island. Yeah. And Doug lives in the community of Klemtu. Oh yeah, Klemtu is a small community on the central coast. It's home to about 350 people. We have two different nations that live here. And we're surrounded by uh, some massive fjords out to the east where all the grizzly bears are and islands on the uh, the outside where the Kittisu people are from. And that's where we get some of the largest populations of spirit bears. I've heard of spirit bears. What, what are they exactly? Yeah, uh, spirit bears are black bears with a rare recessive allele that gives them a white coat. Hmm. So they kind of look like miniature polar bears. They only occur in this part of the world, mostly just on a few islands. But black bears and spirit bears aren't the only bears out there. The Great Bear Rainforest is also home to the grizzly bear, who, even as the apex predator of the system, are vulnerable to hunting by people. So I used to be a bear guide. I started up an ecotourism operation here in my community. I had some guests from all around the world, and my job was to go and take them and show them the beauty of the culture and the wildlife and the territory. You know, we were trying to build a, a thriving business in our backyard, and this must have been around 2004. I just remember we saw something in the water. It, it looked like it, maybe it was a dead seal. We could just see something dark, and so we all walked over. It was the first time I found a dead grizzly bear, and his head was chopped off, his fur was gone. Someone had shot it for a sport. That's when I learned more about trophy hunting, and it was this industry where people come and shoot something for a sport. And I just thought that violated everything we were taught in our culture, to have respect, violates our values, violates everything we believe in. So that totally transformed my life and set me on a path to try and do something about it. What Doug did in response to this experience? That's what today's episode is all about. Hmm. It's an incredible success story that I think can show us another way to think about wildlife conservation. So from Future Ecologies, this is Model Citizens, part two. Barely legal. Oh my god. <laughs> I can't believe you've done this. That title is unbearable. <laughs> Just bear with me, okay? Broadcasting from the unceded, shared, and asserted territories of the Penelicate, Hulwitsum, Lelum Saratineo, and other Hulkaminum speaking peoples. This is Future Ecologies. 
Exploring the shape of our world through ecology, design, and sound. All right. So last episode, we were back in the late 1800s. This episode, we are back in the early 2000s. We have this regulated trophy hunt of grizzly bears in British Columbia at the time. By and large, it seems like this is something that the NAM does accommodate and support. But for Doug, something about all of this felt wrong. At that time, the province had a legal obligation to protect grizzly bear habitat. And I remember the province sent over these grizzly bear habitat maps and they were missing all the islands. There wasn't one island, a part of their population for grizzly bears. And so as a bear guide for over 10 years, I phoned the province and I said, you guys are missing big chunks of data. There's grizzly bears all over the islands. They said, uh, what evidence do you have? And I said, oh, I got video, I have photo, I have GPS. I said, what do you guys want? I'll send it over. They uh, said, you know, Doug, some people don't know the difference between a grizzly bear and a black bear. Well, you know, I've been working with bears for, at that point, probably 15 years. Because I used to be a creek walker for salmon as well. And they basically said, you're not a scientist, you're not a biologist, you can't be making these sort of allegations. Uh, Maybe that shouldn't be as shocking as it is. But it is. Yeah, we're kind of already seeing where principle six of the NAM, which is that science should direct wildlife management it's whose science right it, it can be weaponized to discredit local and indigenous knowledge doug doesn't only know the difference between a black and a grizzly bear but he knows them individually that's john and that's frank or whatever and frank is sam's son or, or whatnot and so this idea that the response would be you know you're not a scientist so you're probably seeing black bears is absurd because it wasn't just that he saw a grizzly bear, he probably knew which grizzly bear that was. Science is supposed to be transparent. Science is supposed to be open. So when sort of the claim of science is used as a blunt instrument politically, of course, it's it's it, it runs against respectful conduct with anyone, but it also goes against sort of the tenets of science itself. This was a red flag for Doug, for how grizzly bear populations and this grizzly bear hunt in particular were being managed in the province. And his counterparts in the neighboring Central Coast First Nations had seen some red flags of their own. So, in 2012, the Kittisu Heihe's, Heltsuk, Wikanu, and Newhawk Nations came together to issue a collective ban on grizzly bear hunting in their territories. We launched a press release and we said trophy hunting is banned based on Indigenous law. Don't waste your money coming here to hunt because we'll do something about it. We'll see you on the water. And it was really some of the first times I've seen people ban something based on Indigenous laws. In so doing, they immediately run afoul of several principles of the North American model, especially those that stipulate that the capital S state, in this case the Canadian state, has the authority over managing and allocating wildlife. And of course, they run afoul of the state's interpretation of its own authority. It ruffled a lot of feathers. We had death threats. People were very upset about it. And some people were even confused about it. Some people said the Indians just want the money for themselves. We try to explain to people it wasn't about indigenous or non-indigenous, it was about how we treat wildlife, it was about bears. 
So when we launched our ban on the bear hunt, we had a response from the province and they said First Nations don't have the authority to issue such a ban. Of course, on the First Nations side, we think we do. We've always had a stewardship responsibility to take care of our territory, to take care of wildlife. The province came out with their predictable response. They said the hunt is based on sound science. They can take a certain percentage of the population without affecting the overall population, even though they don't do any research. And so, to address this issue, Doug and the Kittisuheheis, along with the other member nations of the newly formed Central Coast Bear Working Group, started working with Kyle and other scientists with the support of Raincoast and the David Suzuki Foundation to really dig into the science that the province was using to justify the grizzly bear hunt. The province had long maintained, say what you will about the ethics of the hunt, it's based in science, it's based in science. And so we took a look at the science underpinning the hunt. And what we found pretty quickly when we were examining how the hunt was administered is that there was quite a bit of uncertainty. So, for example, it isn't known with high certainty how many bears there even are here or anywhere in the province. It isn't known how many bears are poached. Uh, It's known that there's a high poaching rate, but it's not known exactly how much that is. And it isn't known how fast populations grow, which is a really important thing to know when when you're figuring out how many you can sustainably hunt from any population without causing the population to decline. Kyle says that this lack of scientific rigor on the part of the management authority isn't limited to the Great Bear Rainforest, not by a long shot. We did a review of the claim of the model that science is the proper tool to discharge policy, which is a great way to describe it. Discharge is right in that name, right? I mean, the science is coming right down a barrel. But anyways, we were looking across all states and provinces in Canada and the U.S. to look for some of what you might expect to see in management that's that's truly science-based. So just looking at that particular tenant and found that by and large, things that you might expect, such as clear objectives, such as transparency in what you're doing and evidence, whether you're using evidence, we look to see whether these particular attributes were evident from hunt management plans. And, and we looked at over a thousand hunt management plans from across these jurisdictions and found that again, by and large, these were lacking. In fact, in most cases, most of the criteria we were looking for were lacking. So coming back to the Great Bear Rainforest, Kyle and Doug and their team released their findings. So the take home message to that was basically, there's a lot of risk currently to hunted bears because of uncertainty in population sizes, poaching rates and growth rates. But what we found, though, is you could set quotas that take into account all of those uncertainties and protect against overharvest. Which, according to their research, would require the reduction of the existing grizzly bear quotas by 83%. And a full third of the province, you could not have any hunt at all. The uncertainty was just too high to have any certainty you weren't killing too many bears. So that assessment came out in 2013. And the province actually responded by increasing quotas, not decreasing them. What? And then they said the trophy hunt was based on economics. Trophy hunting is an important part of British Columbia's economy. And they were trying to say it was worth 350 million to the province of British Columbia. That was all animals. That was every animal. So we asked them, well, what are bears worth in the Great Bear Rainforest? And they couldn't tell us that. So it's based on economics, but we have no idea what those economics actually are. I mean, I think the province was saying uh, the science is good and there is economic benefits. And, you know, uh, Kyle and Doug and their team had discredited that first argument. And now 
they moved on to the second argument. That second argument is kind of another core idea of the North American model, that the revenues from hunting provide economic benefits to communities and, and ecosystems, right? Sure. So Doug and the Kittisuheis, they get a team from Stanford University's Center for Responsible Travel to do an economic analysis of the grizzly bear hunt. They blew the government numbers out of the water. They basically said that the government actually spends more money managing the hunt than they actually make on the hunt. That tourism is way more valuable, bringing in $15.2 million compared to the $1.1 million from the trophy hunt and the resident hunt combined. So they had no economic argument to stand on. Their ecological science found lacking. Their economic argument falsified. You, you have to look at this thing and you have to think like, why are they so dug in? Presumably because policymakers are attached to the North American wildlife model as being the thing which supports conservation. Yeah, that could be one reason. It's it's hard to get inside the minds of, of policymakers per se, but it's clear that that cultural attachment to hunting being a part of our conservation model and that like species that aren't hunted are somehow like less conserved mm. <laughs> is in there, right? It's in the mix. And here's Doug and Kyle. They're essentially hacking away at the economic and scientific justifications for the hunting of grizzly bears in the province. And it's not clear that there's any hunting benefit to conserving this species, unless you count reduced interactions between bears and the general public, which is kind of a a circular (laughs) argument. So all you're really left with are kind of the political and cultural justifications that we were discussing. And Doug wasn't having any of those. I mean, wildlife's an extremely important part of our culture. It's in our songs, in our dances, in our stories, in our clan systems. So wildlife are very much ingrained in who we are, and we have a lot of respect. We have relationships with wildlife. That's something we want to be able to share. But First Nations have never had an opportunity to have a say in wildlife management. Instead, it's other governments, like the provincial and federal governments, develop their rules and regulations, and they leave us out. Now, if you take something like the Wildlife Act, it was developed in the late 1800s by hunters, for hunters, with very little conservation mandate and no First Nations input. And that's still true for 2022. To me, the bear hunt issue for us was larger than bears. Of course, we have a lot of respect for bears, but it was also about Indigenous law. While it took a number of years, public pressure to end the hunt grew. And eventually, the new BC NDP government ended the hunting of grizzly bears across the province categorically in 2017, including in the Great Bear Rainforest, where, of course, the Central Coast First Nations had already banned it in 2012. We hereby second this ban. Yes, it took them a while, but they came around. And Doug says that there's been a huge improvement, especially for the tourism industry, which allows Kitasu Heihei's to offer high-quality employment to people of all ages and genders, and brings in about $2.5 million in annual revenue for his small community. I've seen a huge change in my lifetime. I remember when I first started guiding when trophy hunting was big and all these trophy hunters would come and blast all the bears. So we would roll in with our little tourism operation and you would see the bomb of a bear running away. They associated boats with hunting. So you would be very lucky if you can get a glimpse of a bear before it ran off. You can sit there and watch a bear for hours now. It's been night and day. That's so sweet. It's so amazing that those animals can be rehabituated so quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What difference it makes when we make an honest attempt to coexist. And, you know, it, I guess what seems clear is that 
the population of bears, at least at this point, has not suffered for lack of hunting. (laughs) Also, Doug told me that the end of the hunt is only the tip of the iceberg in terms of what's going on in wildlife management across the territories of the Central Coast First Nations. Each one of our communities have set up a stewardship office. It's dedicated to stewardship, which is pretty cool. So we are driving everything from land use planning to marine use planning. We're driving science. We have watchman programs. We have language programs. We're building capacity within our communities to drive the science. We're doing everything from rockfish research to sea cucumber research, mountain goat research, bear research, salmon research. So we are investing a lot of time and effort into stewardship and sustainability. And all of this research and revival of traditional knowledge and investment in proactive management, Kyle says that it's really paying off. Looking at grizzly bear stewardship among Central Coast First Nations is a really incredible example of international collaboration among Wikinu, Kidisu, Jejes, Hechkauk, and Nukalk Nations coming together for this huge research project on top of the things that we've already talked about. In Nukalk Nation, so Bella Kula Valley, there's this amazing bright spot for bear-human coexistence. I've spent a lot of time in the literature looking at approaches to dealing with bear-human conflict And I haven't come across such an amazing, holistic, successful approach to dealing with that conflict with bears anywhere else. When bears come into people's yards in the Bella Coola Valley, Jay Moody and his bear safe group, they'll go, they'll address all the attractants. You know, if there's fish guts, they'll take them out and they'll go compost them. If there's a fruit tree, they'll put an electric fence around it. They'll talk with the landowners and and explain what's happening and and work with them to come up with a solution. They'll put on a new Hulk radio so that it sounds like someone's home. If a fish has been stolen, you know, if an elder gets a fish stolen by a bear as part of the conflict, they'll work to replace that fish. Like they address this whole conflict from all these different dimensions. And the bears there do not re-offend. When bear safe crew has gone there and dealt with a bear conflict in someone's yard, the bears don't come back, it's addressed. I love this like restorative justice angle for bear human interactions, right? Like when things go wrong, we can fix them. That's such an interesting way to put it. It is kind of like a restorative justice framework where the end point of the process is not one of the parties to the conflict is dead. Right, yeah, it, it's not punitive. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a good way to describe it. And if you remember back to the last episode where we're talking with Mark Elbrook about the challenges faced by people who are trying to conserve mountain lions, these are exactly the kinds of solutions and cultural changes that I think he was talking about that could be implemented to address those kinds of conflicts as well. And just so there's no misunderstanding here, the folks up in the Great Bear Rainforest, they're not against hunting. Not by a long shot. Absolutely. I mean, this isn't an anti-hunting sentiment by any stretch of the imagination. I think that there's probably more wild protein consumed here than in most places uh, in in North America. So it's not an anti-hunting thing, but the approach to taking care of wildlife here of, of other species was just so much so much more suited to play, so much better suited to the wildlife, because what has existed here for millennia has worked for millennia. So, what we can learn from their approach? After the break. Hey folks, I want to level with you. A lot of work goes into making this podcast. We don't do news stories because 
Each episode is the product of months, sometimes years, of research, interviews, writing, scoring, and sound design. We've had some amazing help along the way, from guest producers, so many musicians, remote recordists, and other collaborators. But the team here at Future Ecologies is still just Adam and I. Plus, Adam somehow has another full-time job at the Galliano Conservancy. I, I have no idea where he finds the time. We make this podcast because we think there are people who need to hear it. To hear stories that change how we orient ourselves, individually and collectively, as humans in nature. You might be one of them. Then we produce the hell out of it, to the limits of our abilities, because we want it to be memorable, musical, and, above all, fun to listen to. Then we give it away for free, because we think that's just the way it needs to be. This show is for everyone. And maybe someday this won't be such an absurd business model. But as of right now, just over 200 incredible people are helping us make this podcast. You can meet them all at futureecologies.net slash patrons. Our patrons get a whole other podcast feed for early episode releases and other bonus audio, like extended interviews, behind-the-scenes live AMAs, and a little pile of mini-episodes on mushrooms and seaweeds, plus stickers, patches, and a Discord server where we hang out, share stuff, and get to know each other. So let me ask you this. Is this episode worth a dollar to you? Be honest. You listened this far, and you heard it for free. But would you pay a dollar so that someone else could hear it too? If 50%, just half, of everyone listening said yes, not only would we completely stave off the precarity of an indie media existence, but we could hire a third producer, full-time, meaning more, better, future ecologies for all. So, if you like what we're up to, please support it. You can do so for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to futureecologies.net slash patrons. Okay, back to the show. And we are back. We're back. Yep. I'm Adam. Mendel. And this is Future Ecologies, where we do the bare minimum to keep you informed about what's going on in the more than human world. That's enough. That is the bare maximum of puns. <laughs> um, today, we're learning from folks up in the Great Bear Rainforest about new approaches to managing wildlife resources. Resources in air quotes. Yeah, to, to decolonize some of that language that I think, you know, we might associate with the North American model. How about how to better reestablish relationships with our more than human kin? Mm -hmm. Anyway, two different ways of saying the same thing. More life for more things. Right. Kyle and Doug and their colleagues have actually written up their own set of seven principles for how to do this. It's set up in sort of opposition to the NAM, but... Kyle says it's not meant to be a prescriptive model. What we are not doing here is dictating how communities should 
interact with wildlife or how Indigenous nations should interact with wildlife. Folks are going to know what's best for their own communities, what's best for their own nations. And there's governance systems that have existed for millennia that are quite well adapted to governing their ecosystem. So where this model comes in is more giving tenets of how decolonial governance contrasts to the more colonial models, such as a North American model. And it also provides guidance on those wishing to support decolonized management. And why, you might ask? Why? Is it specifically a decolonial model? Why is it specifically a decolonial model? You're so well behaved. (laughs) I think one of the problems with the North American model is that it does seek to dictate a one-size-fits-all approach to interacting with wildlife that is centralized and led by the state, you know, whether that's a province in Canada or a state in the States. Sovereignty, rights and title, the jurisdiction of communities and nations is completely inseparable from conservation writ large. So you can't even talk about conservation or stewardship or or land use without addressing whose land is it in the first place. In Canada and across North America, right, all of these states and provinces have been imposed on top of Indigenous territories. Well put. And so the fundamental argument is that the NAM, by virtue of its erasure of Indigenous peoples, basically disqualifies itself. It can't be amended. It's not about slightly evolving the North American model. So how do we take this centralized approach and tweak it here and there in order to better incorporate various perspectives or whatnot, but that really to have an appropriate approach to governance, it's really about Doug knows best what what works well for Kitasukehes, right? The province doesn't, just just to put that bluntly. The province could potentially support that work, but that that would be a very different model if the province was saying, hey, Doug, how can we help what's happening? Hmm. Okay. Enough stalling. You you said you have seven new principles? Yep. Let's hear them. Sure. Uh, The nice thing is I don't really have to explain them because they're kind of self-explanatory. In the paper that they recently published on this new model, they come with some really nice illustrations. Hmm. Okay, principle one. Stewardship of resources is inseparable from the rights, title, responsibilities, self-determination, and sovereignty of indigenous peoples. Bam, there it is. Number two. Practitioners steward interconnections among species, people, and their environments. Okay, so it's not each individualized group of animals or plants, it's how they're connected. Yeah, which is... uh, sort of the definition of ecology, I guess. Mm. We're stewarding ecologies instead of species. Right. Principle three, all available knowledge sources are considered and respected. Not just capital S science. Principle four, environmental stewardship is place-based, centered on communities, with collaborations with other governments as appropriate. The state is a supporting actor to the local communities, if desired. (laughs) If. Principle five, practices reflect, support, and or are led by local governance structures and legal systems. So total relocalization of governance here. Principle six, practices reflect local values and worldviews. Hmm. And principle seven, governance recognizes, respects, and addresses the cultural importance of species and places. So uh, what's your reaction to these principles in comparison to the the seven principles of the NAM? I find it a lot easier to relate to these principles that so much about ecology is so context specific. And of course, 
it feels self-evident that the people who have the most insight into how to negotiate those relationships effectively are people who have been on that land for a long time. Maybe it's not up to us to imbue that authority, but we can at least acknowledge it and we can ask the state to acknowledge it as well, right? Yeah, and Kyle actually like speaks directly to that in talking about this model that they've proposed here, right? It, it puts a lot of emphasis on local self-determination. I guess the devil's advocate argument would be like, if you totally give control over to local communities, that could result in really bad outcomes for wildlife in some places, right? And, and Kyle says, you know, either way, that's the point. Certainly there's millennia, again, of evidence that the governance systems in place before centralized industrial colonial systems were imposed better sustained people and ecosystems alike. But that said, it's critical to realize that people's rights are not contingent on getting a certain outcome that we want. So we can't say, yes, you know, indigenous peoples have the right to govern their own resources as long as they do it the way that I think they should. Eco-colonialism is the term that's given for that when you have conservation groups that are happy to support indigenous sovereignty and indigenous rights as long as nations make decisions that, that these outside people think are appropriate. So we try to make very clear, this isn't an ends to a means. It's not, okay, support indigenous authority and indigenous sovereignty rights title because you'll get more hectares of land protected. That's a really damaging viewpoint, right? That, that indigenous rights title, you know, human rights are pre-existing and stand alone. And the requirement to uphold those rights is not contingent on anything else. It's such an important point. Like if your allyship and, and your support for Indigenous sovereignty is conditional on the outcome that you want or the cause that you personally support, it's not really about Indigenous sovereignty. You're just treating that as a vehicle to get what you want. Yeah, I, I think Kyle makes that point. And I think it emphasizes that we have a lot of evidence that Indigenous knowledge has been extremely successful, much more so than I think anyone could make an argument for the more recent and short-lived models that we have today. Right. So obviously, to these two settlers with this podcast, this seems like an important foundation for moving forward. But that perspective might be hard to swallow, especially for some non-Indigenous communities that have lived off the land for generations, or for some conservation groups who are deeply invested in the democracy of consumptive users. How that is generally interpreted on the ground is that all British Columbians have access to all British Columbian wildlife. And that, of course erases indigenous sovereignty of their own territories. So democracy of hunting? Maybe, but then again, maybe not. Under the decolonial approach, it would depend on the local community. I don't know. It's ridiculous to me to think that like, oh yeah, I have the same claim to hunt an elk in the peace as someone who lives up there. Yeah, but I've spent some time scrolling through hunting forums. It's clear that many non-indigenous hunters think that indigenous people already get privileged access to wildlife. And that's against the principles of the NAM. Ideally, everybody should be equal right. in the North American model universe. It's true that in many jurisdictions, there are regulations that indigenous peoples are exempted from. But the big picture, as we discussed in the last episode, is that what we know about the depletion of wildlife populations across North America is that that came largely from the result of market commodification of wild animals in settler colonial society. Right. And this depletion, we, we kind of hinted at that in the last episode, but it had catastrophic effects on indigenous lifeways and economies. Well documented. 
those lifeways and economies were based in large part on wild animals. Meanwhile, indigenous people are left out of the conservation movement, and as hunting and fishing become more regulated, their traditional harvesting activities on the land were often criminalized. You know, from Doug's perspective, his community is just fighting for a small piece of what used to be the lifeblood of his nation. Now, give you an example. I've been working on eight years on a crab file. There was 56 crab bays in my territory, and the commercial and the recreational industry had access to 100% of it. So my community is trying to say, well, listen, we, by the time our small boats can get out there, there's nothing left because the commercial guys will come in and set their 400 traps, let them soak for 18 days. The recreational guys, which no one keeps a tab on, so there could be 50 boats or there could be 1,500 boats. So by the time we get out there, yeah, there's no crab. We've had to prove that there's no crab, spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on research. And I remember one of the comments from one of the industry folks, they said, if the First Nations get one crab area, we're going to protest. I thought, wow, we're sitting here trying to fight for a few little bays for ourselves to feed our community, to make sure that people have food here. That isn't an idle threat, right? You might remember a recent example of this kind of conflict in 2020 around the lobster fishery in Mi'kmaq territory, Nova Scotia. In that case, non-Indigenous lobster fishers and community members reacted threateningly and, in some cases violently, to a First Nation launching a small, sustainable, off-season fishery. Good evening and thank you for joining us. There is a disturbing development in the escalating violence of an Indigenous lobster fishery in Nova Scotia. Last night, 200 non-Indigenous commercial fishermen gathered outside a lobster pound. This Indigenous fisherman says he barricaded himself inside. They said they won't let me leave unless they have my lobsters. A lobster pound being used by Mi'kmaq fishers has been completely destroyed by fire. This is all that's left of the facility. A Supreme Court ruling 21 years ago upheld Indigenous fishers' right to earn a so-called moderate livelihood outside of regular seasons. But no rules were established as to how that should be implemented. That's led to standoffs on the wharf for weeks. With each violent episode, calls for peace become more urgent. Investigations continue into a slew of other incidents, including this, the most troubling episode yet. The fundamental disagreement is over who has the authority to determine access to wildlife, right? The NAM would say that the state does, and the decolonial model would put that power in local control. And in many cases, this would vest it in Indigenous communities. So for Doug, going along with the NAM is just no longer acceptable. Yeah, I, I just see so many flaws in this model uh, of management. There's a lack of science. There's a lack of management plans. There's a lack of enforcement agencies. There's a lack of First Nations input. If you have people in Victoria or Nanaimo that manage our wildlife, people that have never been here, never stepped foot in our territory, they'll sit there and, and allocate the wildlife to all these different user groups with zero information. This, this is one of the essential things that has led to revolution in the past, right? This idea that the people making decisions about how you live your life have no point of contact with that. There's no representation within your community. There's no power invested in those places. It's all exported. If that's threatening your ability to eat, that's like a critical issue and nothing else really matters. And that's come to a head before. I wonder if we can negotiate that more gently. Well, I mean, that's why we have this decolonial model that Kyle and Doug and their colleagues have articulated that basically says, you know, the North American model, we need to completely throw this out. Maybe it worked for some species and for some people, 
for some amount of time, but it's no longer an appropriate or acceptable way to manage our relationships with the more than human world and probably never was. And reading this, I can see that influence of, you know, living in a small rural community and what that kind of intimate relationship with nature does to you, you know, does to a culture. And you know who else grew up in a small rural community? Who? Shane. Shane Mahoney. He grew up in rural Newfoundland. I know what rural people come to know about things. I saw it. I grew up with it. And that was over generations going back three or four hundred years. And this perspective gives him a lot of respect for local and traditional knowledge. It's easy for me to imagine as a result of my experience what 6,000 years of knowledge means or 12,000 years of knowledge, or 15,000 years of knowledge. That perspective also means that he too would like to see local communities have more say over how wildlife is managed. I would love to see local, rural, Newfoundland communities have more say over resources. I argued when I was in government that we ought to give isolated communities in particular land to manage for food production because we know how to grow snowshoe here and we know how to grow moose. What are snowshoe and moose? Like moose the animal? We can grow moose? Cool. What's snowshoe? Snowshoe hares. Oh. They're weed species. We can grow them. We can create explosions in them. So I've long been in favor of giving local people more say. And if it sounds like Shane is hungry, it's uh, because he is in a way. He feels strongly that food can be at the center of resolving some of these disagreements among like-minded people. And in some ways, I think it's actually a bit of a departure from the NAM because the North American model is based on this system of regulated, fair chase, and sportsmanlike hunting. This form of hunting has more or less eliminated market hunting, but it also marginalized subsistence hunting and the economies of indigenous and rural people. If you look at the NAM from the perspective of somebody hunting for food to feed their family or community, then why in the hell would you care about sportsmanship? Or fair chase, you're, you're just trying to eat. And the Teddy Roosevelt's of the world are telling you that, you know, you're doing it wrong. And by the way, they think that they deserve the same access to your food sources as you do for their sport. Mm. So Shane, with his company Conservation Visions, has started something called the Wild Harvest Initiative. The Wild Harvest Initiative was an attempt to transcend the differences amongst people by finding a common language that we could all speak and would all care about. That wasn't science and it wasn't climate change. I needed something much, much more fundamental to bridge this dialogue. That's food, natural food, sustainable food, healthy food, and also food that you touch, that you have a personal investment in, whether that's growing your vegetables, picking your own berries, hunting your own meat, raising your own chickens. This is real. And I wanted to convince people that the sustainable use of wild foods is not a sideshow. It involves billions of people, if you include world fisheries, for example. And if we thought about landscapes primarily as food provisioning systems by we, I mean society, it would fundamentally change almost everything. So what's, what is he proposing? 
Well, right now, he's working with states and provinces to try to figure out just exactly how much wild food is being harvested and consumed by families in North America. Because nobody really knows. Huh. He wouldn't share any numbers with me just yet because he's working on a long time sample. But he says it's, it's a whole lot. I will tell you that there literally are billions of meals being provided. And you have some idea then about what this is worth. And once he figures out how much food is being provided, right, how much wild food people are eating in their day-to-day lives, he has some questions. What would happen if we stopped these activities? What would be the ecological cost of replacing all that wild food? And secondly, to ask the question, well, is it possible for us to very substantively increase the production of wild foods? I think that this last question is really interesting, and I think it's something that Kyle and Doug would also see a lot of value in because of the importance of wild, traditional food to coastal communities. I want to open people's eyes to these kinds of possibilities because, in my view, while we can't ever assume that we can feed the world only on what is produced in the wild any longer, I think we could do a much better job of that at a local, regional, and even at national and international levels, if we really tried. And I'm interested in really trying, because as somebody who values his own wild foods a great deal and who grew up in a culture where that was extremely important, I also know how it changes people's views, how it shapes people's views, if they are providing for themselves in a direct way. One of the changes that he brought to my attention that's really stuck with me is that we're much more likely to share wild food. Whether it's berries for our grandmother's pie, or whether it's a moose that you know we, we, we harvest for our own meat, we are compelled to share. We are not compelled to share the foods we buy. So this tells us something about the profound nature of this. If I'm harvesting wild food, I'm so much more likely to want to share it with other people or to enjoy it with other people. Mm. And I've had, I've had so much of that kind of food shared with me in a way that, you know, with store-bought food, it's, it's just not the same. And it took me a while to realize this, but for Shane, while he does care deeply about wildlife, you know, he's, he's dedicated his career to it. He also cares just as much about local human cultures and his own community. You take rural Newfoundlanders out of their fishing, bird hunting, moose hunting, seal hunting, context. And even if they live on the same island, they're not the same. So I'm sitting there talking to Shane, and I'm thinking about how I'm having this kind of two-way conversation with people who are living on opposite coasts of this huge country that we call Canada. You've got Shane in Newfoundland, Doug in Klemtu, Kyle in Bella Bella, and me over here on Galliano. And we're all just people living in these small rural island communities who want to preserve the ability to live alongside wild animals and, you know, occasionally to eat them. All of the rest of this stuff about the NAM, it's it's just kind of in the it's just kind of in the way in some ways. Like I don't want to gloss over the disagreements in this episode. If you put all of the folks we've interviewed in a room together, 
I'm certain that there would be some disagreements and certainly different approaches. Some of those differences might be truly substantial or even foundational. Some of them might be just in terms of the way things are articulated, which audience they're speaking to. I don't want to gloss over those disagreements. But everyone we've spoken to here loves and values the more than human world and wants a place for human beings within it. And so what I'm going to do for the end of this episode is just to cede the floor to these three people and give them the closing thoughts. Because I think you've heard enough of mine. (laughs) Works for me. Sometimes in wildlife research, it becomes a real bean counting exercise. You know, how many... How many animals are there on the landscape? How fast is the population growing? How fast is it shrinking? And this is an important dimension for sure, but I think that sometimes when we only look at populations as as numbers on an Excel spreadsheet, we kind of lose perspective of the fact that, that these are actually individuals on the landscape that are family units, that have lives. When we think about things like the North American model, or when we think about conservation in general, that we recognize that Uh, is one story, but there's thousands out there and there's very different ways of looking at things. There's very different ways of governing things. And I think that the more that we can recognize that and the more that we can support and uphold people on the ground who have these much deeper relationships with places and with species and who have the right to govern their own lands and territories, I think that the benefits will be for all. So I've long been in favor of giving local people more say, but there is an inherent challenge And it is true everywhere. Communities need capacity. Conservation is an incredibly complicated piece of business. Economics, politics, culture, science, local knowledge, ecology, climate change, you know. I mean, it's this, instead of being the simplest thing, which some people seem to talk about it like it is, it's the most complicated adventure in life. We learn a lot just from watching wildlife, you know, and wildlife have given us so much. We learn how to survive in our stories. It's the bears that taught us how to survive, what roots to eat, what berries to eat, how to eat the salmon. Things like bears, I think, have a really important service that we offer. They're aerating the soil so that more nutrients can grow so you get productive estuaries. They're eating the salmon, they're taking it into the woods, and that salmon is decomposing into the soil, into the roots of the tree, where you're getting nitrogen-15 that's producing massive old-growth forests. And so my people always say everything is connected, and uh, it, it is. People say you can't talk about bears without talking about salmon, because if you remove the salmon, you remove the bear. If you remove the bear, you remove the forest. And so everything's connected. My elders always say to me, you can develop all the management plans you want. You can draw a circle on a map, but it doesn't protect anything. They said people do. So get your own people out there and protect it. I'll leave you with one small anecdote. I met a man, his name was Lewis Melvin, 40 years older than I was. And uh, he was a big fisherman, big fish killer, as we say here. Like a lot of rural Newfoundland fishermen, he He hated whales, and he hated whales because the whales, particularly the big whales, the humpbacks, they got in his cot trap, of course, and when they got in, they went into a frenzy and couldn't get out, and they tore it to pieces, and these are massive things. You need three and four boats to set them out. And so he would lose his season, so he really hated whales. After he finally gave up fishing, he was 78, 79. That's when he came out of an open boat. I caught him down at the end of his garden one day in June. We have 
schools of fish that come in here called capelin that come in in massive numbers and the whales and the fish come in behind them feeding on them and so on and the whales will come in right next to the beaches and they'll turn on their sides to get as much of these fish in and then blow it through their baleen plates anyway lewis was down there and he was fairly deaf by that time and i uh, hit him and said what are you doing lewis and he said i'm watching the whales i said oh yeah I said, I thought you didn't like whales, Lewis. And he looked at me and he said, Shane, they were only like us. We were all chasing fish. If he could invent a completely new philosophy of nature, then I, I think it's possible for all of us. quick note at the end of this episode. In March of 2022, the BC NDP government introduced Bill 14 to amend the Wildlife Act in order to, quote, ensure greater collaboration and reconciliation with Indigenous peoples in the management of wildlife in the province, unquote. It remains to be seen how this amendment impacts the dynamics we discussed in this episode, and we'll be watching. Future Ecologies is an independent production made possible by our supporters on Patreon. For citations and a transcript of this episode, visit us at futureecologies.net. This episode was produced by myself, Adam Huggins, and me, Mendel Skolsky. It features the voices of Shane Mahoney, Douglas Nieslas, and Kyle Artell. And music by Thumbbug. Museum of No Art, Troll Dolly, and Sunfish, Moon, Light. Special thanks to Mark Elbrook, New Hulk Radio, Amanda Hull, Brody Guy, Kyle Artell, Chris Dermont, and to the Sitka Foundation for supporting our fourth season. Thank you. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. The handle is always Future Ecologies. Okay. That's it for this one. You'll be hearing from us again soon. <laughs>